Welcome to Heavy Networking, the antidote to lockdown tedium. Well, maybe it's not quite that good, but it might give you a respite from watching the end of the known world, or at least that's what it feels like going on out there. In today's sponsored show, we are talking with Omar Sultan from Cisco Siskins about what he's been discovering in the world of automation and orchestration, which, to my surprise, apparently includes egg-laying wool milk sows but more on that later. Now, Omar is a long-time uh, guest on the Packet Pushes. He's been with us for uh, almost since the beginning, and he is today the public face of Cisco's Network Services Orchestrator product. And I'm going to be somewhat controversial here in saying that NSO is actually my preferred SDN solution from the Cisco portfolio. Cisco has many SDN products, and it has a range of them, and NSO is actually my preferred one, and I've got reasons to say that. See, NSO, or Network Services Orchestrator, has multi-vendor cross-domain ability. So NSO allows your domain teams to keep their favorite tools, but still be able to build integrated workflows. Now, I see this as useful because you might have other SDN tools from Cisco's portfolio like ACI or SD Access or SD-WAN with their features, but they're very rigid, very structured, and fairly narrow products. And they're also trying to work out your intent, and they want you to work a certain way, which might not be your way. Cisco's NSO is a much more open, expansive platform to my mind. It's got extensive support for open APIs and methods for device and network operation. It's got a tool set to consume a wide range of network features and to integrate them. So, for example, NSO can be used to orchestrate ACI and SD Campus together. So you can actually start to unify things if you use that. And you start to just treat ACI as an automation tool, which is in a certain way of thinking, a viable way to go forward. So this is cross-domain automation, and it's not something that many people are considering, and that's the discussion we want to have today. How does cross-domain authentication work? How does it fit? And some of the things or some of the lessons that Omar's learned from the glorious world of customer IT. <laughs> Omar, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. I'm happy to be here again. And yes, there is no more glorious destination than customer IT. It is the best. <laughs> yeah, enterprise IT. So... You've been out there selling NSO and working with customers on this product. And what we wanted to talk today is about this idea that automation and orchestration is actually quite a, a non-linear idea. And I guess the, the part that I want to talk about here is how do we make the world safe for orchestration? Or is it, let, me, let me start with this. What's the gap between automation and orchestration and how do we, how do we handle that? I actually use your definition, to be honest, where automation is a single robot doing things and then orchestration is multiple robots working in concert, yeah. which I, I really like. I, I think the challenge is everyone has their own definition. So when you sit down with folks, you kind of just need to say, okay, for this conversation, this is how we're going to define things. We're not going to fight about it and you know, just move on from there. Yes. Automation is I configure a switch. Orchestration is I'm configuring a firewall and a switch and a VLAN and IP addresses. And yep. you might actually be using multiple tools. So configuring firewalls might be using, uh, you know, an orchestration tool that does firewalls orchestration as well as something that does network orchestration. Or it might be a, in addition to some Ansible scripts that you've got going on as well. I think that's kind of the good thing, and that's also the challenge. I'll, I'll tell a story. So a couple mm -hmm. of decades ago, I got divorced and and suddenly found myself with lots of free time on my hands. So I decided I'm going to go learn the guitar. <laughs> so I got a guitar, started taking lessons, and, you know, you start with, like, one finger strumming a single string. Like, oh, this is cool. I can do this. And, you know, two fingers, you know, still strumming a single string. And suddenly it's like three fingers and chords, and suddenly got really hard really quickly and like, oh, <laughs> and 
this guy know what can, can I recommend the bass, Omar? Can I recommend the bass? One one note, one finger, and you can get a long way. Anyway, I I didn't mean to wreck your metaphor. I'm thinking triangle and sticks is my speed. <laughs> <laughs> or the play button. That's my best way to get some music in the house. But but automation is a lot like that, right? We start with, you know, a, a lot of network engineers are doing some science projects, say, you know, using some Python scripting or even, uh, you know, basic scripting that's built into their, the, their OS of choice. And it's like, oh, this looks pretty cool. And they try and do more and more. And like you say, we start to go from, you know, trying to automate a single box to all your network gear to then suddenly your network gear and your optical gear and, Somewhere in there, there's like this hockey stick of complexity um, in terms of your, you know, basically for a couple of reasons. One, you're, the, the automation is more complex, but now you're maybe using multiple tools. And, and maybe the hardest part, you're talking to multiple people. You have to go make friends with other people and get agreement on this is how we turn a port up or this is how we provision a circuit. And, you know, that suddenly starts to turn from easy to, to quagmire. Well, you said something interesting as you as you started this this section. You said science project, as in, yeah, mm-hmm. people start messing around, and it's a it's a science project. They're just having a bit of fun, um, in in a sense. In other words, it's not this very structured, very organized and disciplined approach of how they're going to do automation systematically for their whole org or for the entire network as a system. It's right one device. I'm going to write a script that does this one annoying problem I have and fixes that for me. But it wasn't designed to be a whole system that everybody in the team can consume and become part of a standardized workflow. It is a science experiment. When you try to sail, uh, scale a science experiment, yeah, that doesn't work so well. No. The, the, the only folks where I've ever seen that work is kind of the web providers, the hyperscale, the, the Googles, the Facebooks, where they build, a, they build a business process and they figure out how to automate it, then they figure out the tooling, and then they buy infrastructure that fits into that. I think almost every other environment, it's uh, it's a bottoms up kind of thing, and that works to a point. But if it never moves beyond that, then you kind of, you know, for all these wondrous things that automation is supposed to do, you need to be able to, you know, break through the science projects aspect of it before you start to get some of those larger payoffs. Well, you, you said something else there, the, the complexity hockey stick. So if we're imagining a hockey stick where it's not so bad for a while, but then pretty quickly the complexity ramps up and to the right as you mm-hmm. add more pieces and parts to this scenario. Um, it, now, you deal with a lot of customers that are automating, so I'm assuming that complexity hockey stick is what you're seeing customers run into. The more stuff they try to add to the mix, the more difficult it becomes to automate because, well, because why? That's what I want to get from your perspective. I think you know it's, it's the tried and true people process technology aspect to that. Um, the first one is, well, I'll go backwards, right? The technology. A lot of times you end up having to use different tools. I mean, everyone's got their favorite tools. And, you know, one of the things we argue is automation is a team sport. There's no Uber tool or, uh, you know, milk, egg, laying, sow, critter (laughs) that will do everything for everybody. And either we have one or two things. Customers wait for that Uber tool to come out and they never get anything done. Or they take a tool that does one thing particularly well and they try and use it to do everything and create a lot of long-term pain and suffering in the process. So you, to try and break that down to something, one of the things that we've seen in networking is that Ansible is very popular. Mm-hmm. But when people go into the public cloud, they use Terraform. Mm-hmm. But VMware recently bought SaltStack. Yep. So now you're going to end up with um, the best tool for a certain job might be SaltStack if you're trying to do something on VMware because that's their in-house tool and they might walk back from Terraform support. But if you're going to go and work on AWS or Google Cloud, 
Terraform might be the best tool for the job. And you might be able to use Ansible for these things, but you might find that Ansible's a bit of a left-handed screwdriver type thing. Absolutely. Um, and that's a challenge, right? The worst thing, you know, all the engineers, the worst thing you can do is walk into an engineer and say, okay, you're doing it wrong. You should use this tool instead. That never, seldom goes over really well. So uh, part of this is is kind of working with what's there. So, I'll, you know, I'll tell a customer, you know, if they walk into a customer, they're using Ansible. Like, no, for a lot of cases, Ansible is the great tool. It's great. It's easy for some things. It's, you know, I can't really make a case that NSO is a better tool than Ansible for this particular use case. But what will inevitably happen is you need to, you know, you start to do more complex things and the things that NSO does well, as an example, you know, start to knit with what Ansible is doing already. And that's how you build progressively or, you know, to Greg's example, you got Ansible in a part of an organization, you got Terraform in a different part of the organization, and you need a workflow that spans both, right? Then you need some kind of tooling or duct tape or, you know, automation spackle. To, to knit those things together into a single workflow, that's a much better use of time than going fighting with the Ansible guys or the you know Terraform gals and getting someone to you know displace tools at work. So is it is it a tool that does that stitching together and that spackling uh, and and gives you that unified workflow because you're interacting with a, a tool that sits up higher that then orchestrates the other tools in some way. Or is it the workflow is, okay, you work with this thing, this tool, and you get this result, and then you move to this other tool and do the next thing, et cetera? Um, yes. <laughs> so uh, in, in my case, it's it's the tool. You know, that's part of what NSO does. It, you know, it knits together different tooling. But reality is it's all, it's all through these things. So you need the, the mechanical linkage of those tools and the way to implement those workflows. You also need agreement on how the process is going to work. And that often is a, is, is a sticking point. I mean, even if you, if you, if you take a NetOps team of a decent size, five or six people, if you ask them, hey, how do you turn a router up or how do you build, you know, a, you know, a, a layer two tunnel, you're going to get like, you know, five engineers, you can get six different answers. Now take that and then say, okay, now I've got the, the, the data center gals and the SD-WAN folks, and we need to knit a solution together and agree on how things are done. And, you know, so this is where the you know the the people quagmire starts to starts to to build. So you need internal agreement. This is how we th- you know this is a process that we all agree on that we're going to go automate. They need to go have that conversation with a bunch of other folks that have a different part of the thing. Okay, I want to park on one point you just made about the you ask five different engineers, you get five different answers on how to do a thing, which I thought was interesting because mm-hmm. in. Most of the orgs that I've worked for, if it's been a smaller team, usually there's like one person that will kind of tell you how that's done and they've written a process and other people like fearfully yeah. just go through it step by step. And yeah, do yeah it. you have but, the dude. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> but then then in other orgs that have been larger, you got a lot of people with uh, with input. You, as long as you're getting to the same result, that's, that's okay. But um, still different people with different opinions to define the workflow. Uh, in, in other conversations I've had about this and automation, it's been less about the engineers having the argument more like we didn't even know what we're trying to do we're trying to figure out what it is we're trying to automate we haven't even gotten as far as five different opinions it's just like what are we doing again because you start thinking it through what the process is that you follow to actually get the thing done whatever it is you you need you know that that's a pretty hard bit too it is 
And this is, you know, so you need a solution, you know, maybe the dude solution, it may be consensus, but at the end of the day, you, you know, you're writing code, you need something to, you know, you need something to code. The other piece of that is, you know, if Greg and I lead different teams, he's got the WAN team, I've got the data center team. And the only way our teams talk is when he and I talk, yeah. it's also not all that helpful. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's really hard on the design phase. But it's actually, it's a bigger issue actually in operations and implementation. So if something goes south, as everything goes with this trombone up three layers of the org chart, then back down three layers so, you know, two engineers can work together. That whole WAN data center campus wireless, you know, wide campus, wireless campus, that to me is collapsing. We're seeing that disappear slowly, but fairly steadily Mm -hmm. as automation creeps in. Once automation takes a hold, the differences between those technologies start to become less extreme. Like the way that I've always envisaged it is that the WAN was radically different from the data center, the whole technology set. You really needed to be focused on the data center. It was hard to be both WAN and data center to the at a high functional level, right? In 2021, I don't think that's the case. I think with automation and orchestration, those things that set you apart are going to progressively disappear. I, I agree. agree. And I think a lot of times automation is the lever that forces those conversations. Well, it's it's automation, yeah. and and sometimes that automation is being driven by a complex process where you're trying to do something unified across those different networking silos. But I think it's even more than that. It's not just the networking silos because we've talked about WAN and wireless and campus and so on. You know, in, mm-hmm. in smaller shops, especially. It's an application delivery platform that encompasses compute and security and storage and the whole thing, uh, networking too, needing to work together to, to, to make all of this happen and, and become involved in the network automation conversation. Yeah, the problem is it's probably the worst way to actually deploy network automation in your environment <laughs> is to, you know, figure out how you turn a router up first. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, kind of work progressively. And I think a lot of times... I see the challenge with automation projects that they get sold on these big, massive, we're going to have you know, a gazillion dollars or induction of OPEX or you know half the time it takes to turn up a new service. And if that's your first outing, you're not setting yourself up for, you know, it's kind of figure out how to, you know, figure out how to configure RIP and put an IP address and you know, address on your interface before you try doing, you know, not so stubby poor areas on your in, in the OS, <laughs> yeah. OSPF config. Yeah. So I, I bring this up, Omar, because that that is more the cloud thinking, you know, where it's yeah. it is trying to unify all the things. It, it is, but the thing to remember with cloud is it has this really easy consumable front end and a whole host of really smart people on the back end pedaling really hard. Hmm. Yeah. To make it that, you know, it's kind of the whole duck analogy where, okay, and Tyler looks really easy, but, you yeah. know, having to work with those folks, there's a, an immense amount of tooling and smart people and, and stuff yeah, well, going it's like, on. Um, chicken, it's like fried chicken, right? You, you go to a shop and you buy fried chicken and it's really simple. Yeah. But what you don't see is that right the way back in the, <laughs> in the production chain, yeah. they, they are literally growing chickens. <laughs> like mm. they're, they're actually predicting how many chickens they will need in three months' time and they have farmers who produce, you know, and batch the whole and then that flows through into the, into the slaughtering process and the handling and then the distribution and that's all. So just to walk in and buy a, a fried chicken burger is actually very, very complicated. Consuming the chicken is very now I'm hungry. Mission <laughs> <laughs> accomplished. But, we, yeah, that's we right. take you a know, break like, now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's the same thing with automation, I think, 
um, operationally. And this is this comes back to your point about complexity. Is a lot of people see automation tools, and it starts to look very easy. And you've got to be very careful with your automation, um, not to cause yourself problems. Because if you try and make it too easy for the help desk to use, all they know is that if they click this button, all problems are solved. Mm -hmm. And then when the problems actually get outside the bounds of what automation can solve, then it all gets a bit, you know, all falls apart. So, yeah. yeah and it's also what problem are you trying to solve? I mean, there's a great XKCD about automating a task and the, the you know, the, the effort of automating is more effort than actually doing the task. And I still have conversations about, you know, why do I need infrastructure as code or CIDCD deployment pipelines? I can log into this box and change a config in about 30 seconds. And, if that's the problem you're trying to solve, then that's the problem you're trying, you know, that's not, yeah. you know, don't bring a hammer to try and swat a fly. You know, you're trying to do, you know, instead of using automation to do bigger things or address different things like consist consistency or, or, or uh, you know, reducing errors or, or speed of operations. So, you know, you kind of need to have a different conversation yeah. about you're, why you're and doing. And I think the other side here is there's a rule in, uh, there's sort of a DevOps rule that, what you deliver out of DevOps reflects the internal organization of a company. I think it's mm -hmm. actually more of a bigger economic rule. It's like, um, you know, if you make a division inside a car company that's going to make a four-wheel drive car, yeah, they will make a car that looks like a four-wheel drive car, but yeah. it might not, you know, historically that would never use the parts from a standard car because they would develop it all in isolation. And yeah. a lot of the times the internal organization defines what can be delivered. And if you're going to automate, this comes back to your WAN data center campus discussion, you need to start challenging yourself and probably the executive as well. So your IT managers have to start thinking of operation as an overarching thing. It's not just something that comes in and, you know, puts a Band-Aid over your VM deployment or your Kubernetes infrastructure or whatever. There's a much more structural thing going on, I think. There is. I think, you know, one of those tricks for being successful, you have – you have domain level automation, right? You have the network engineer playing around with Python scripts, and you have, um, you know, someone using Ansible for server, you know, server turn up those kinds of things. Typically, find customers that are successful in their deployments have kind of someone that sits at the at the workflow level. So, who who has responsibility for automating the workflow for a particular business function, like turning up a customer or? or, you know, turning up a, a remote branch, that's a place we start to get some normalization of the effort, right? They're the ones that bring things together, make sure the tools meet at the edges. Uh, you know, my tool connects to your tool, it's passing the right information, giving you end-to-end -end troubleshooting. Otherwise, you, know, you kind of get a lot of, okay, the router's up. If, you know, if the branch can't get through, it's not my issue type of stuff. And suddenly you have no one else to go to. go talk mm. to. It's interesting. Those folks often end up being, end up being your first line of, 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 of engagement when things go south. Because, you know, if I'm sitting at a branch and saying, you know, my branch isn't coming up, I don't know, should I talk to the SD-WAN folks or the router folks, whatever, I'm going to go talk to to the workflow, you know, whoever owns the process and say, okay, branch turn up's broken. And then they go and do the, you know, do the autopsy and say, okay, where is the workflow or where's the automation breaking mm -hmm. down, which, which is super helpful both in the, the planning and design phase and then again in the operational troubleshooting phase, having that point of ownership for the end-to-end -end automation. I'm still on complexity, Omar, because I, I have mm -hmm. one more question that hasn't is a part of the topic that we haven't actually gotten to yet. So mm -hmm. a few years back at Interop, I made a, a presentation on 
simplification of your network. That is, if you expect to be able to automate your network, you can't have a bunch of corner cases and weird things going on because coding for that and trying to automate for that will be very difficult. Therefore, come up with some standards for your organization and stick to them and you'll be sane. And it, it felt like I was talking to a dead room. Maybe maybe it was me. I wasn't delivering well that day. I don't know. But it was like everyone was... <laughs> most After that talk, people were coming up and, and we were chatting about the ideas and everyone was basically saying... Too hard. Can't standardize in that way. I've got to have my snowflakes because reasons, you know, to support the business, mm. to fix this quirk. Are we at a point now where everyone's finally over that thinking? And as they automate, they're realizing that as soon as you begin incorporating the corner cases, the complexity ramps up. I don't think we're there yet. There's a reason most of the automation tools you see start off with server tools. When you look at Ansible, Puppet, Chef, they'll start with server tools. I think that community has embraced the, the you know the pets to cattle to insects hmm. much more quickly and much more effectively than um, the networking folks have. We're still you know a lot of router huggers, and, and everyone likes to think of their network as a snowflake. And then it's a it's a mental mental shift. I'll I'll defend networking a little bit. There's the idea of making fast rapid changes to your network is not historically something that we've done. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people still haven't made the transition to public WAN or internet, but they're still buying. And then as soon as you sign a five-year contract on an MPLS network, your foot is actually nailed to the ground. You don't have, like, and that's, and this comes down to your think carefully about your tools. Mm-hmm. Think carefully about what it is you're trying to achieve. Um, if you've got a dedicated MPLS private WAN circuit that you're committed to for five years, no amount of automation is going to make that any better. You have just had your foot nailed to the floor. You know, the only thing that you can configure better is an ACL on that router. (laughs) You know. And and to poke at something you said, speed should the speed of execution should not I actually think in networking speed of execution should not be a goal. I I think when you automate at the network level, you're automating for things like consistency and and, and predictability. If you're turning up three hundred branches, if you're hand typing each of those things, you know, you're gonna have some Failure rate. You don't want them turned up in five minutes, but you want everyone to come up right the first time and mm. not have to worry about it. I can't stand up a lab with 10 routers without screwing it up somewhere. <laughs> and I, I wish I was kidding. Ugh. Well, I mean, the flip side of this, of course, is if you are deploying a thousand routers on a private WAN, mm-hmm. then you've got an automation purpose. Uh, yeah. But the automation might be different in that circumstance where it might be configuration repositories and simple validation. It doesn't have to be a bad configuration. It can be ripping the configuration from a device and then validating that it conforms to a template. It might be adding the devices to an asset database so that you can track them. It might be fetching the data and then advising the vendor. Because there's so much today, and what we do today is telling the vendor about licenses and software updates, and there's an awful lot of that out there. And maybe we have to go into those software servers and tell them that, yes, this device has this tag because it's located in, you know, France, in Europe, and so you have to add a tag to it so that you can, for software licensing, know that it's based in Europe because that's part of some, I don't know, GDPR thing or whatever. Who knows these days? It's all very weird. (laughs) It is very weird. But but back to your question about, you know, the, the snowflake aspect, I think you need to be honest, right? You, you probably, you know, yeah, we have customers, they have processes. You should not ever try and automate them because they are so convoluted or so so bespoke. And you know, I'm very much, you know, start with the easy stuff, start with the simple stuff, and and maybe go from there. And maybe there's stuff that you should never automate, and that's just the way it is. 
the so you're saying if you order, I think what you're saying, Neil, and I think this is an important one because I may or may not yeah. agree. You're saying if you're going, cool. <laughs> if you're going to, if you're going to automate, don't mm-hmm. necessarily just copy what you're doing today because what you're doing today may be yeah. dumb. Yes. Yes. There we go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've seen this forever. I mean, we've been doing this for a long time. So it's like mm-hmm. I have, I can't swear, but I have suboptimal process. I'm going to virtualize it because that's going to fix it. No, it's not. I'm going to move it to the cloud because that's going to fix it. No, it's not. I'm going to now containerize it or make it serverless. No, if it's crappy process, no matter what you do with it, it's going to remain crappy process. And when you automate, all you're doing is you're now doing it at machine speed instead of hunt and peck speed. So <laughs> that's that's yeah. part of it. I think the other thing to consider, though, is if you cling to that process and you have a competitor that manages to automate it, they're going to get advantage over you from a business perspective. They can turn customers up faster if they can do it more inexpensively. That's really the thing to consider Yeah. in the long run. So don't force it, but at the same time, recognize the price you're paying for, okay, for so not that- figuring out how to automate it. Yeah, we're not saying don't automate. We're saying you, you, you need to automate, but not that terrible process. Fix your process, yes. which will probably be hard, but that sets the, the foundation that you need so that you can automate and move ahead. Mm-hmm. And the challenge here is that as somebody who's had the misfortune, fortune, privilege, um, whatever, um, I've worked at over 100 companies in a 30-year career because mm-hmm. I literally moved as a reseller. When I worked for resellers, I would... I would go from company to company and literally work on premises for months or weeks. And then as a freelancer, I would go and work for companies and move through many companies over my lifetime. And a lot of people who work at the same company for extended periods, so people who've been in an organisation for five years or ten years, may not have the vision or the ability to stand back far enough or the management expertise to stand back and go, that business process is wrong. They may also not have the authority. They might have pretty poor Let's just say that IT leadership, poor quality IT leadership is far far more common than it should be. Um, so that ability to stand back and evaluate a process and say, you know, it would be smarter if we did it like this is not actually always doable. It's a challenge. Yep. Hey, I mean, to go off on a tangent, I, I think doing that is the best thing you can do for your career. And for, you know, for early in my career, I was a consultant for like three years. And I worked for probably a good dozen customers in that time. And it was so mind-opening to say, oh, there's wildly different ways of doing of doing things. And, and that's, you know, that's for anyone listening. You know, if you can work that kind of thing into your into your career plans, it's, it'll, it'll pay off down the road. There's so many different ways to do, do exactly the same thing yeah. is what I learned. Yeah. There are. <laughs> the and automate the, the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Routing is routing. And, <laughs> switching is switching. It doesn't matter. And there's so many different ways for people to see it. You just sit there and look at them and go, like, how did you get from this? <laughs> it's like, like, where does that idea come from? Well, Some my, use more Visio shapes than others. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to get your take on org, org structures. A while ago, you'd made the point, you, you kind of did a comparison. Ah, if, you know, Greg and I are both managers and the only way those teams communicate is through us, then you've got a bottleneck poor communication and, and you didn't say politics, but potentially politics are involved and, you know, and so on. So how, how do we reorg? So I, I have a little story here where I had advocated in one shop I worked that rather than be organized along, this goes back a ways, but rather than be organized along technology silos, we should be 
organized along functional silos where mm -hmm. the architects, no matter what technology they worked on, worked together and the engineers together and then kind of an operations frontline team uh, together rather than storage and security. And I'm trying to remember how this particular shop was organized, but it was more like that. And that got friggin' nowhere. No one was interested in that because all the little fiefdoms would have been disrupted and no one knew who was going to end up where and, you know, and all of that. But it would have solved a lot of our communications problems had we reorganized that way. Um, what For the shops that are successful with automation, what do their orgs look like? Did they have to make changes? Can you comment on that? Yeah, so where they are successful, essentially they have operational an operational overlay, right? So they have the, you know, we may be in three different organizations, but then we have a work, you know, some sort of working group for owning the, you know, the workflow that spans our three domains. So, at a, you know, and then in the trenches mechanism, you know, level, we can have a short conversation. It's just three hops between, between the three of us and we can get stuff figured out. We don't have to go route through, uh, you know, up three layers, down three layers, back up three layers, down three layers. And a lot of it's, it's, it's not magic. It's just a matter of getting some agreement. This is how we're going to communicate and, you know, establishing permission. This is how we're going to communicate and, and kind of build those pathways. So it wasn't, wasn't that the org had to change necessarily. It's merely that everyone came to a communicate, an agreement for communication. This is how we're going to talk. Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't and, have and a manager right? like, like walking in and going, I, this has actually happened to me. I don't want you talking to my people directly. If you want to talk <laughs> to my people, you have to go through me. And I was yep. like, oh, okay. I had no idea. <laughs> wow, you're insecure. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I think the word you're reaching for was childish, but yeah, okay. <laughs> Shortly followed by, how did you ever get this job? Oh. <laughs> I think the first thing to detect here is that if you're in silos, your mm -hmm. automation will lack. I mean, the, the challenge that I've seen is silos and automation, and that is you can do automation within your silo, but the real value is when you cross silos. So if you're in an organization that says you're in this silo, you're allowed to do this, you're in this silo, you're never ever going to leverage the best. And that goes back to that thing that you're talking about is you need to look at your process, you need to consider your overall structure to get the real value out of automation. Yep. And, and you, you know, you might be able, I mean, culture, company cultures are all over the place, right? And you do, I mean, the you know, what you talked about is as often as people that are, yeah, come on in. And, you know, we talked about people that kind of own the end-to-end -end workflow. Sometimes they're the ambassadors that bridge those organizations where you can't punch through the silo walls directly. Mm. And that's the best you can do. And a lot of times that works because they're really represented as a line of business yeah, mm. as opposed to operations. So they have a stick, to, you know, they have a, a stick mm. that they can use to drive those things where you within the silo, you know, probably sitting as a cost center, can't have that conversation or don't have the leverage to pull it off. Mm. It's like, why are you messing with my branch turn up? Okay, that's... Yeah. yeah, why are you making me use your asset database when I've got my own da asset database? You yeah. know, And that's very common, uh, especially if you're in the data center and using Cisco ACI, which has its own asset, you know, source of truth. Yeah. But if you've got some SD-WAN solution, you know, you've got some sort of Silver Peak SD-WAN, it's got its own source of truth. How do mm -hmm. you start stitching those together? Create a third sort of truth is actually the answer, of course. Have a third source of truth is... is or, or not. I mean, we do well in networking with multiple sources of truth and and learning how to reconcile them, right? I'll, I'll be tempted to not use DNS as an example of that, but so, 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 <laughs> 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 let's just see like routing an autonomous, you know, autonomous, you know, networks, right? At some point, I mean, you're routing something to .com. You just trust, you hand it off 
you know, in BGP and it gets to the right place. You don't have to look internally to that. And we, you know, we route by working with these authoritative sources. And same thing. We, we, we covered this in the last podcast we all did together is you're going to have multiple sources of truth. Not like in the same way you're not going to have a single Uber tool. You're not going to have a single source of truth. So, but you need to be selective. You don't want like, you don't, it's not like Facebook friends. You don't have like a thousand Facebook friends you've never actually met. You want to have, you know, a small number of sourcing sources of truth that are authoritative for the things you depend upon them for and, you know, ignore them for everything else. So I don't know what's going on with the SD-WAN circuits. I don't necessarily need to care. I just need to know, you know, Greg mm. knows and I can ask Greg and he gives me an answer and I go run with it. Yeah. So this yeah. is, this comes down to a tool which can query so, and this is this is what you need is a tool that can query those systems. Yep. So I like to think of SD WAN. You know, there's an SD controller. There's a software SDN controller that's there controlling that function. There's an SD controller running your campus. There's an SD controller running your identity management system. There's an SD controller, and some of them are cloud based, and some of them are on prem. Mm-hmm. And this comes back to your point about complexity. At some point you need to bring them all together and start saying, I have to bring all of those software-defined software controllers into a unified whole, but Mm -hmm. only for some functions. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to create a master source of truth for all of these disparate systems because they're all, um, they need to be standalone because they need to do their thing. So your identity management system is, um, you know, like duo security is is an identity management system fundamentally, right? And You're not going to fiddle with that because that's what it does. It does all of that software. But what you need to be able to do is pull data out of it and store it into your source of truth so you can make it relevant to your data center or your campus or whatever. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't have to create a master to configure it, I guess, yeah. And, and it's also that don't ask tools to do things that weren't intended to. So, so somewhere, somewhere in your organization you need someone, dare I say it, that holds intent for what you're trying to accomplish. I'm trying to turn up a branch office. Let's we'll just keep using that as an example. But the individual piece of that can be relatively parochial and say, okay, all I care about is the SD-WAN power. All I care about is turning up the branch router. All I care about is getting firewalls provisioned. But somewhere, someone, someone needs to hold kind of the big picture mm-hmm. and, and stitch those things together and make sure things are happening in the right sequence. And if something breaks, um, how, to, how to unbreak it. Yeah, uh, that's right. I think some of the hardest things that automation deals with is is soft failures or partial failures. I mean, if it went through, awesome. If it completely blew up, it's easy to deal with. It's when it half blows up that all the you know that the fun and excitement starts. Yeah, you got to have a lot of tests in place to know what really happened and at what point you failed and what state you're in at that point. Yeah. Soft failures are the hardest failures. If something's broken, at least you can go troubleshoot that because you know it's broken. Yeah. When something's just a little bit broken. Sometimes it's really hard to do a little bit of troubleshooting to find that little bit of broken. Yeah, um, you know, when my car dies, I want the car to die. Well, you know, what, what, at about fifty miles an hour, it makes this rumbling sound. I know this is. Oh, well, I'll just go, I'll go to work and I'll fix it tomorrow. <laughs> it's not perfect, but it'll be all right. It'll last a bit longer. I know the one text's going to look at me like I'm an idiot. <laughs> I want to ask. A, I want to ask an unusual question that I don't normally get think to ask, which is. Is it possible to use automation tools and orchestration tools for troubleshooting? So to literally automate a troubleshooting task, is that something yes. that you see done? Yes. So Facebook actually has a really cool tool called Facebook Auto Remediation. I'll use an example. So there's a lot of buzz out here, and there's AI and ops mm-hmm. and Skynet and all this stuff. 
I believe there's a lot of hype, my personal opinion, because yeah. they're probably Cisco companies or teams <laughs> that are building these things. Um, so we'll leave those alone. But um, Facebook auto remediation is very cool because they'll track tickets and they'll, they'll see traps come up. And then basically they have, okay, if, if this is the error, do this. If this doesn't work, do this. If this doesn't work, do this. If this doesn't work, go call somebody. So then they can, they, you know, and it's not particularly fancy, but it's it's it cut their the number of tickets humans see by like 97% on, on Facebook scale infrastructure. So you can imagine how much right. stuff actually gets handled. So I'll say, if, you know, it's the equivalent, you know, if we could have, a, you know, if it doesn't work, flip the power switch and we could automate that, that would probably solve a good 30% of all networking issues right then and there. But yeah, we, we do see people starting to do remediation through automation. If the, if the failure modes are well enough understood and the, or the remedy is well enough understood, you can certainly start building remediation systems that do that kind of stuff. I'm going to ask you another people question, Omar. Mm-hmm. Where are we at, in your view, with people who are resistant to automation versus embracing it? And I, I mean the, the, the traditional engineers, the, the router huggers we've alluded to earlier, the CLI jockeys. I just, you know, I leave them alone. I, I'm a big fan of, you know, don't pick battles with folks. If, if you, you know, if you have fun, someone that's a, C, you know, a, a CLI hugger, let them be a CLI hugger. I, I think that over time will resolve itself. Either they're either they're the dude and they can get away with it, or eventually they'll get outpaced by people that are using automation to be well, faster, that, better, more accurate. That that was that was my point. If in my mind here, if you're not willing to move into the automation space, and there's a million reasons why, you know, maybe you'd feel mm-hmm. that way. Where you're at in your career, what you're comfortable with, the skill set, sick of doing the new things, all of that, all those things, a lot mm-hmm. of us can fall victim to. Then at some point you do fall behind and you will be, you know, passed up. So, you know, is it necessary for organizations to get those people on, on their side? You know, you work, you're working with them. Um, if you see what I'm saying, instead of like, this is happening if you want to do it or not. (laughs) (laughs) I I think so. Okay. From, from a leader perspective, I I think if it was on my team, I kind of lay out, this is what's expected of you. If you can do that, how with my team, right? I say, okay, this is what I want from you. How you do that, when you do that, I really don't care. I'm not your mom. Uh-huh. So if you have someone, you know, you have the dude, and he has, or she has magic fingers on this on the keyboard and gets things done. And to be honest, I wouldn't sweat it and sweat it. I, I think in reality, at some point, that's going to catch up with with, with folks. Because it's a complicated some... one. It's all right if those people are doing their thing and not, mm-hmm. but what most often can happen is those people get in your way yeah. and Brent, they'll the Phoenix run around yeah. throwing roadblocks in front of you saying this is the only true path of, of you know, network operations. And that, can, and that, of course, is a management issue, not a not an automation or orchestration yeah, issue. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a leadership yeah. issue if you allow yeah. that to happen. Yeah, you took it in a different it way is, than but, I was thinking, Greg. I was thinking operationally yeah. just become the bottleneck like like in the Phoenix Project. But you're actually saying well, that's the, the people thing who is, play the politics. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm a big fan of automation because one of the things that I realized years ago was I don't get paid any extra for working late. Mm-hmm. I never got paid extra for working five hours into the evening. I might have got a pat on the back and a couple of free pizzas just made me put on extra weight and made me unhealthy, but I didn't get paid extra and I didn't get a whole lot of any, uh, I didn't get a better life out of it. And I see orchestration and automation as making my life better. If I can orchestrate and automate things so that I can do them during the day so I can go home on time, if I can 
know that if I make this change by using automation, it's reliably going to do it. And if I can create a troubleshooting tool and hand it off to the hell desk and let them do the troubleshooting so that I don't have to go and do all of this scut work to do, mm-hmm. you know, honestly, how many times do you have to trace route something before you think, why don't I have a tool to do trace routes, right? But but oh, there are oh, folks yeah. that love that, though. I mean, there, there are yeah. folks that are addicted to that way of life of being the hero and, you know, being up at yeah. 2 o'clock in the morning doing trace routes and, you know, happy that <laughs> the help desk needs to come to them at the drop of a hat. I'm so um, over that call at 2 in the morning. My boss, I know. The last time my boss did that, I was <laughs> completely asleep, hard, hard asleep, and he woke me up that sleep. And the first, and he told me, he started, hey, hey, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, so-and-so, and, you know, we got this. And I said to him, why are you calling me? That's all I could think to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's how over it I was. No, I'm 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 with you guys. Anything that we can do to uh, not get those calls, fantastic. Let's do that. I am not addicted to that way of life. I'm over it. Yeah, I think yes. we both carried yeah. pagers at some point in our in our respective careers, and it, it gets old at some point. Yeah, I used to carry flat batteries for mine. <laughs> <laughs> The right way, the wrong way, and Greg's way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I didn't. I used to. I didn't ignore it. I just put flat batteries in the pager, and then I'd say, "Oh, my batteries on the pager must have gone flat." <laughs> yeah. Oops. But uh, yeah, I, I do think that. Um, I think there's a couple of things here in that the automation process can get complex too. So the other side of this, Omar, is that it, as we alluded to in the front, you've got this wondrous animal. Uh, egg lang wool milk sow. Why don't you, you've got this in German? Tell me, tell me the story. It is, it is a German. German word. I love German because you kind of have this Lego-like approach to building things that don't exist. So I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. Uh, yeah, you can drop it in the show notes. <laughs> but it's, mm-hmm. it translates to an egg lang uh, wool milk sow, which you know is an animal that gives you eggs, milk, bacon, and you can uh, knit a sweater from its uh, its fur. And you know, it's like the idea you have this one thing that gives you everything. You know, there's one yes. critter that gives you, you know, an entire breakfast plus, you know, the blanket to keep you warm while you eat. Um, and it just it's just not a thing that exists. But, you know, you can spend a lot of time trying to chase it or build it and spend a lot of time yeah. and, and waste, uh, waste a lot Don't of time. Don't try and boil the ocean is the other side of this. Don't. Yes. Um, the other, I think that the, I think what you're trying to say there is that if you're going to get go down the automation path, don't try and overdo it. Yep. Don't try and orchestrate too much at once because you'll literally be trying to create a pig that gives you eggs, milk, bacon, and uh, and wool, and you might end up getting none of the things that you actually want. Have tight goals, focus scope, be successful, learn stuff, and then progress a little bit more. I mean, I, was, yeah. I, mean, I, I usually use the image of a, stair st- of a staircase when I do briefings. Like, you know, it's, it's not like one big step. It's a bunch of little progressive mm. steps built on top, you know, one after the other, but, after a while, you go know, good places. Right. Well, I think, and the other thing about NSO is it's a very mature product for me. It comes out of an acquisition made previously mm-hmm. uh, with Tail F, and they are very big into the Yang situation, and that's part of it. And they've got like 15 years behind that product. It's not yeah. It's not something that burst last week. It's actually, <laughs> um, there's a lot of hard lessons at scale that have gone into that product. And... The other thing, because um, I've watched a lot of presentations with NSO with you over the years, is there's also a lot of pre-built tools in it. So mm-hmm. you don't actually have to invent wheels. A lot of the wheels have actually been done by somebody, like Cisco's NSO product team 
is actually saying, well, if you want to manage this type of firewall or this type of router, we've already done that because that's what we do. Yep. You just have to do the configuration. It's not like um, you have to redo the CLI or build the APIs for a sonic interface or whatever. It, a lot of this is pre-done. Yeah, I mean, we we allow you to work with, you know, a generic CLI. It looks like either, you know, our Cisco CLI or brand J CLI, because that's what most people know. Mm. And it'll do the automatic translation between what you type in the CLI and whatever devices you're managing. Um, and, and that's something that we build as part of, you know, part of the service for whatever you have. So, yeah, it lets you hit the ground running. And, and I think the other thing I like about and I know we didn't want to talk too much about NSO. We want to talk about the approach. But I think this is really important. The idea of NSO is that it's a non-specific platform that's a universal tool. Mm-hmm. So you could either go and write your Ansible scripts and then get NSO to run those scripts for you, mm-hmm. or you could just as easily point NSO at SD-WAN or Fortinet firewalls or Palo firewalls, and um, it can then orchestrate those. So it's a, it's, it's a generic it's a wide dispersion platform. It's not a specific thing. And that can be hard for people to understand, I think, when you're selling them. When, when, yeah, when you part of what NSO you can do in SO is build services which are completely agnostic of whatever the underlying infrastructure is. So you could build it and then with the NEDs, you could, you know, you could use it to deploy services on Juniper gear, Cisco gear, virtualized routers. It doesn't make a difference. So for the service writer, they write a service once and they don't care anymore. And then for the infrastructure, I mean, you know, the classic story, the networking team, you know, did some IP address consolidation over the weekend and suddenly something blew up on on Monday morning. People can't log in anymore or or get to the email. So it gives you that separation between what ops is doing and what, um, you know, the apps and service owners are doing, Mm -hmm. which is you kind of need that loosely coupled thing when you start doing these workflows, right? You can't have your work. You can't have your your day job died to something that the SD-WAN team did that just irritate yeah. stuff you know if your if your scheme looks like the three-legged race no one wants that you know it just mm. makes the whole thing more awkward and more clumsy yeah. well i think the other side of it is we talked before about there's some people who want to do it this way and there's some people who want to do that way some mm-hmm. people want to write terraform some people want to write ansible mm-hmm. nso is a platform that embraces that in its own and says sure if you want to configure this tool but we'll give you a, a tool or a platform that brings all those together and unifies them so that you could you know, be using Terraform to configure networking on a public cloud, as well as using Ansible to configure something in your network. And you need to unify those. How do you unify those? Well, there's lots of different ways to do it, but one way is using NSO as that platform. Mm-hmm. It's something our tool does, but, you know, functionally that's kind of the architecture you want is not drive conformity of tooling because that's you know, that's a battle you're not going to win as much as the ability to accommodate what's there and stitch it together. Well, Omar, I have thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. It's uh, automation is, isn't it interesting how as people get into it, things change and perspectives change. And it's just, this is one of those defining moments for implementation, for operations, for engineering uh, to me, where we're at with, uh, with automation. So uh, now you, we, we were talking before the show about uh, a very special call to action for folks, you know, and a lot of times it's like, go sign up for a webinar, go do this or go do that. But we don't have anything like that today because you've got uh, something more heartfelt you want to share with folks. We do. I, I trust your audience to figure out how to use Google for the things we talked about. Um, so we did one of these a, a few, a couple of months ago now um, with, with a, a former coworker of mine, Kevin Corbin. We talked about, you know, why aren't people doing more automation if it's so great? 
Um, and unfortunately, he, uh, he died in an automobile accident a, a few weeks ago. So he has a young family. They're heading into the holidays. It you know, kind of just sucks. So um, he, he works for HashiCorp, and they set up a GoFundMe for his family. So I'd rather you know, use this time to point folks at um, the GoFundMe site. I think we'll drop a link in the, in the show notes. And if yeah. folks are so inclined, uh, maybe contribute to that. That would be very cool. I'd be appreciative of that. As soon as we're done recording, I'm going to head right up to that. And uh, yes, if you're interested in donating to support Kevin's family, Kevin Corbin, we'll have a link in the show notes for his GoFundMe page. Thanks for bringing that to our attention, Omar. It's much appreciated. Hey, thanks, for, thanks for giving me the space. Well, on that note, uh, people should uh, think about where they want to get more information for Cisco's NSO, and they can go to Cisco's website. You can just go to cisco.com slash go slash NSO. Um, there's a whole range of different products there. Uh, and if you're really lucky, you can find Omar. And uh, if you've been listening to Packet Pushes for a long period, you'll know that our first show with Tail F, which was the precursor, was back in 2011. Ethan, I think it was? It was, indeed. It was back show 81, I think, it was, when I did a search. So uh, that's quite a long time ago. And we've been working with Omar for about the same period of time, for eight or nine years. So we just want to say thanks very much for for being with us on this heck of a journey. And um, it's good that we're still doing this after all this time. Networking is different from back then, but it's still... I think we were arguing Catalyst 6500s back then. Uh, I think uh, I think we had some uh, passionate conversations about FCOE. FCOE, <laughs> <laughs> <So we> indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Today, the comedy technology that keeps on giving. So on that note, <laughs> thanks so much to Omar for coming on the show, and thanks very much to Cisco for sponsoring today's show. And as I laid out at the beginning, this is my controversial point of view. I think that NSO is my preferred solution for SDN from Cisco, and I think I've explained why if you've been listening at this point. As always, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts on the website at packetpushes.net. It is so helpful to us if you could give us a like on your podcatcher, you know, head over, leave a review, say that it's great or bad, whatever, whatever's good for you. Uh, and as always, remember that too much technology would never be enough.